Father, thank you so much for this group of women who have stayed uh, just steadfast in this study of 2 Corinthians. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to just walk away from this study today really with a, a lot of application, things that we want to do as a result of this study. And Father, I pray that today with you know just some of the issues we've dealt with with sound and uh, that that would not be a hindrance to your word going out and hitting our hearts and touching our hearts. Father, speak to me today. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you have taken a spiritual gifts assessment? I'm just curious. Well, you know, one of the... It's interesting that when women take a spiritual gifts assessment, one of the gifts that almost always shows up high on a woman's test is the gift of shepherding. And I think part of that's just the way that we're wired as women. We have nurturing hearts. We have a mothering heart. We, we want to come alongside. We want to nurture. We want to take care of. We want to protect. And we just find ourselves often in a shepherding role. And shepherding others isn't always easy, but it can change lives. And so this morning as we finish this letter from Paul to the Corinthians, we see the heart of Paul, the heart of a shepherd, the heart of a discipler. And we can glean some principles from his relationship with the Corinthians that we can apply in our own shepherding relationships with others. It may be your children that you're shepherding right now, and those are very precious disciples. It may be another young woman that you're coming alongside in some way to help them grow or mentoring them in a specific area. And so this morning I want to look at three principles or key ingredients that should be part of a discipleship or shepherding relationship. Three ingredients that we see in the relationship that Paul had with the Corinthians. They all start with C to make it easy. Uh, commitment, and then concern slash confrontation, because those two are going to go together, and then challenge. And so we're going to take each of those one by one and look at them, but that's where we're going with this this morning. So let's start with his commitment to them. You know, Paul had established this church on his second missionary journey. We talked about this in the introduction to this study. And he spent a year and a half with the Corinthians, wanting to help ground them and give them that foundation for a solid Christian walk. And then he left, and he went on to other churches. But things didn't go well after Paul left. Um, there was sin in the church. There was immorality. And these false teachers were trying to draw them away from the truth of the gospel, these false teachers were putting doubts in their minds about Paul, his motives, his love for them. And so things weren't going well after he left. And Paul could have just walked away from them and said, I am done, throw my hands up, I'm finished. But he didn't. And he didn't because he was committed to them. He was committed through the good times when they were doing well, but he was also committed 
during those hard times. And they didn't show much commitment to Paul. But that didn't matter to him. He expressed his love and commitment to the end to them at the end of chapter 12, which we looked at chapter 12 and chapter 13 this week. And so at the end of chapter 12, there are three places where he expresses his commitment to them. And I just want to look at them quickly. Uh, The first one is in verse 14, when he says, I do not seek what is yours, but you. I don't want your money. I don't want your possessions. I'm not out to pocket your money under wrong motives. I want you. This relationship with you. You are more important to me than your money. I love you. Uh, when I first came here, uh, is Jenny Wilkins here? Yeah, you probably remember this. Um, Jenny's granddaughter, Holly Marie Biggs' daughter, Bradley. Bradley and I just had this sweet little connection, and every time she'd see me, she'd run up and give me a hug. And one day, Bradley and Janelie and I were walking down this hall. It was almost Bradley's birthday. And I asked Bradley as we were walking down the hall, I said, so Bradley, what do you want for your birthday? And I thought she was going to say a princess doll, you know, because she was into princesses at the time. So I said, what do you want for your birthday? And she stopped, and I don't know if you remember this, but I'll never forget this. She stopped and she looked up at me and said in a very soft voice, I want you. And I thought, you remember that? (laughs) I want you. And I can't tell you how that melted my heart. I want time with you. I want to just be with you. And, of course, we took her to lunch the next week for her birthday. (laughs) Because how can you not give this little girl what she's asking for? You. Well, and that's what Paul is saying. I want you. Not what you can give me, but I want you. That is a way to melt somebody's heart when you give that response. Verse 15, he also says, a second place, he expresses his commitment. He says, I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. What a strong statement of commitment. I will go to great pains for you. I will sacrifice for you. I will fight for you because I love you. I will do whatever it takes. That's a commitment. And then in verse 19, he also expresses it when he says, All for your upbuilding, beloved. You know, he's saying, Everything I'm doing with you, my teaching, even my defense of my apostleship and the gospel, All of this is for you because I want to build you up. It is for your upbuilding, not tearing you down. What a great love for these Corinthians. When, from a worldly perspective, they didn't deserve that kind of love and commitment back from Paul. But that's the very exact same love and commitment that Jesus Christ has for you and me. We don't deserve it. There are often times I've thought, why do you even hang in there with me sometimes, Lord? He could throw up his hands and say, I'm done with you, but he doesn't. Because Jesus is committed to us 
Paul followed his example of shepherding. You know, Jesus is committed to us and loves us even when we're not lovable. Even when we're enticed by other loves in the world that would pull us away from him, his commitment to us doesn't waver. And Jesus wants us, a relationship with him, not what we do for him. He wants us to be with him, not give things. That's not the big thing. Jesus is the good shepherd, and we should model after his shepherding heart. Paul did. So if we're going to shepherd others well, we have to be committed to them through good times as well as bad times. When they're walking with the Lord and when they're not, we still have to stay in that commitment to them, to to walk with them. The second ingredient we see is his concern and confrontation of them. You know, as we're shepherding others, we need to be aware of concerns that come up. But we also need to be willing to confront that person when it's appropriate, address the concern. You know, Paul says several times in chapter 12, for I am afraid. I'm afraid this. I'm afraid this is going to be happening. In other words, he's saying, I am concerned for you in these areas. And then he mentions, he expresses two key areas that he is concerned about in the last half of chapter 12. His first concern is about their ungodly character. He is afraid, he is concerned that their character has become worldly instead of godly. That it looks like the world instead of like Jesus Christ. In chapter 12, verse 20, he says, For I am afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish, and may be found by you to not be what you wish. You know, he was saying, I hope I come and I find you growing in Christ. I hope I come and find that you are walking with the Lord. But I'm afraid that's not what I'm going to find. And if, if, it's, if you're not walking with the Lord, you're not going to like me. Because we're going to deal with this. Now, once and for all, warnings done. So he's concerned about their character and he shares the ungodly characteristics that he is concerned about that may be present in their lives. And I I know you looked at these this week, but I want to just take a minute to look at these characteristics. Uh, The first one, strife. It's also translated as discord or quarreling. You know, Paul was worried that the Corinthians were still quarreling and fighting with each other. And in his first letter, in 1 Corinthians, and we're going to refer back to 1 Corinthians a lot because that helps us understand why he's so worried at this point about them or concerned. In his first letter, he had already warned them about dividing into factions and competing for power in the church. Back in 1 Corinthians, he said, some of you are saying, I'm from Apollos. Others are saying, I'm from um, Peter. You know, stop fighting. Stop putting yourselves into groups. And he was afraid that that was still going on. A second characteristic he's concerned about is jealousy. 
And jealousy was one of the key problems in the Corinthian church. They were jealous of each other. He talks about this in 1 Corinthians 3 when he says, your jealousy makes you look like you're walking in the flesh. And instead of concentrating and focusing on what God could do through them and their unique gifts, they were busy looking at somebody else going, I want that, I want to be, I want that gift. I want the gift of teaching. I want the gift of tongues. I want that. And so they were jealous of each other's abilities. Another thing he talks about is angry tempers. Uh, translated, different translations, fits of rage, outburst of anger, intense anger. And so those negative attitudes, quarreling, jealousy, division in the church, they were resulting in outburst of anger. That people were getting, just tempers were short, they were just blowing up at each other. And then another area he's concerned about is their disputes. Uh, The translations of this are selfish ambition, hostility, selfishness. And it was the Corinthian selfishness, and literally in the Greek text, this word translated disputes reads selfish ambition. That's really the root of this word. It was their selfish ambition that was causing problems in the church. And again, back in 1 Corinthians 4, he had described how they were boasting in themselves. Look at me. Look at what I'm doing. And he had already warned them to stop looking at somebody else. Stop looking at themselves and focus their glory and honor on the Lord, not them. Not their own reputation. Another word is uh, that he's concerned about is their slanders. The Greek word used by Paul here literally means evil speech. These disputes caused by selfish ambition were ongoing quarrels. It wasn't just a quarrel, deal with it, we're moving on. They were just ongoing, continuing quarrels where church members begin to take sides, and then they would backstab, and they talk about somebody on the other side in one of those other groups. Another area he was concerned was gossip. <clears throat> the Greek word for gossip is literally whisper. It gives that picture of somebody coming up and going, you know what's going on over there? Did you hear about so-and-so? And he is concerned that they're not just slandering each other in public, but they're doing it in private, in secret, whispering to each other, malicious gossip. And then another area is arrogance or conceit. The Greek word that Paul used for conceit or arrogance here means inflated. They were inflating their egos. They were thinking of themselves as much better than they were. And instead of building each other up in the Christian faith, they were becoming conceited, inflating their own egos. Look how good I am. What would this church do without me? They were seeking their own glory instead of God's glory. And then the last area he was concerned about was disturbances or disorder. And he warned the Corinthians of disorderly behavior 
he was speaking about any behavior that disrupted the worship services or contributed to the disunity of the church, that they're doing things that there's just this division. Paul was concerned that these attitudes, that these character traits would be present when he came back on his third visit. He was concerned that their lives would reflect more of the world than Jesus Christ. And he was concerned that they were tearing apart the body of Christ with these characteristics. And we have to ask ourselves, are any of these characteristics present in my life? Am I guilty of doing this? Am I gossiping? Am I causing division? Am I criticizing and causing separation and factions in the church? And we need to ask ourselves that. The solution for all these areas of concern is humility. Not considering myself as more important than I am, but also being willing to give up what I want. And say, God, what do you want? What's better for the body as a whole? than what just my personal want is and the way I want things. So his first concern was about their character. His second concern was their unrepentant hearts. He is concerned that they have not repented of sins that they've been confronted about. He's also concerned that they haven't even, some of them haven't even confessed sins that they're guilty of. In verse 21, he says, I'm afraid that when I come again on his third visit, he says, I'm afraid that my God may humiliate me before you and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. And he mentioned three specific sins, all of a sexual nature. And again, I'm just going to touch on these quickly. He talked about impurity. And the Greek word for impurity means unclean. That word suggests that there were those, anybody who was participating in those sexual perversions or unclean before God, and they needed to repent so they could be brought back into that intimate fellowship with the Lord. A second thing he touched on was immorality. And the Greek word used here, which I'm sure you've heard this before, the Greek word used here for immorality is the word pernea, which is the root for our English word pornography or pornographic. And so pernea refers to illicit sex. And it's, we see it often in our Bibles translated as fornication. The Corinthians lived in a society where they didn't regard adultery as sin. Their mindset was just enjoy pleasure however you can get it. Just indulge. That was the mindset of the Corinthians, that city. And then the third sin that he addresses is sensuality. And the Greek for sensuality or licentiousness means excess or absence of restraint. It speaks of shameful conduct, that type of sexual activities that occurred at these religious orgies at temples in Corinth, and there was no restriction. There was no restraint. Just do whatever feels good. 
No matter how bad it is, no matter how shameful it is, just do it. Enjoy it. And that's what he was warning about. And we go back again to 1 Corinthians, that first letter he sent. And in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, he had given them instructions of how to discipline those church members who were persisting in sexual immorality. And he gave them specific instructions for this man engaged in incest. You remove him from the fellowship because he's not repenting. But Paul had warned about these these areas and he had warned against those sexual temptations. But he was afraid that they had not listened. And that he was going to come and these things were still going to be going on and there had not been any discipline. And so he was concerned. So there, there were those two areas that he was concerned about. Ungodly character and unrepentant hearts. And his concern that he saw moved him to confront them and to talk about it, to address it. Are we concerned enough about those that we disciple and shepherd to, to first to notice and be aware of concerns? But then are we committed to them enough to say, we need to talk, we need to address What's going on? And I've had to do that a number of times. I had a young lady I discipled in Dallas. And she got married and called and said, Can I come and stay with you a few days? I, uh, I just need some time to separate. Sure. Found out she was having an affair. And it even had the guy at my house when I was out of town. And I had to, when she got back in, I said... We need to have a little talk here. And I just said, this is, this is not pleasing to God. And I'm going to have to ask you to move out because I'm not going to be part of this. Did I enjoy that? Absolutely not. Would I have rather have just ignored it? Yes. Because I don't like confrontation. But if we're going to shepherd young women and kids, we're going to have to have those difficult conversations and say, listen, we need to have a talk. But do it in the right manner in love. So we've looked at the first two ingredients of healthy discipleship, shepherding relationships. A commitment to those little sheep, but also a concern and and an an awareness of the concerns that are coming up and being willing to confront And then that last ingredient is his challenge to them. And we see his challenge to them in chapter 13. And he basically begins the chapter by saying, listen, I am coming back to you for the third time. I want to see you, but we're going to deal with this. Once and for all, I have written letters. I have instructed you. I have warned you. And when I come back, just be ready. Because I'm not sparing anybody. There's no favorites. There is going to be church discipline if these things haven't been addressed. And so then he gave them several challenges as he ended this letter. And I'm not going to go through every exhortation that he gave. Because he gave a lot. But I do want to just look briefly at four of his challenges 
because I think these are good for us to really ponder and think about. And one, the first one is we need to test ourselves. He said, test yourself or examine yourself in verse 5. He wanted them to examine themselves to see if they were really believers. Your life doesn't look like you're a believer because to be a Christian means that Christ lives in you. And he was saying, listen, I don't see Christ in you. So maybe you need to stop and look and say, did I just go through the motions? Am I just a Christian by name? And we have to ask ourselves, did I just walk down an aisle or say a prayer and think that's it? Because if we're in sin and we're continuing in sin with no repentant heart, that's the time we need to step back and say, okay, I need to think this. I know I've been in churches where elders have showed their testimony. And said, I served as an elder for years, but hadn't accepted Christ. And so when we are shepherding others, and we see them in sin, and it's continuing, and we need to say, hey, have you truly accepted Christ? And sometimes they're just on a path of carnality. You know my testimony. I spent those two and a half years on the wrong path. But Bonnie helped me... And examined my heart and said, you're a Christian. You're just on the throne of your life. But that's the first challenge. Asking God to show us, and then sometimes we need to go to that person and say, are you just walking through the motions of being a Christian? Have you ever really put your faith in him? Because going to church isn't enough. Walking an aisle isn't enough. Saying a prayer isn't enough. It's that faith that, that counts. A second challenge he gave them was do the right thing. You probably heard that said. I've had it said. Cricket, just do the right thing. Verse 7, he says, Now we pray to God that you do no wrong, but that you may do what is right. Deal with sin. Don't pretend it's not there. Don't just turn an eye to it hoping that it'll go away. Deal with it and discipline those that are in sin. I remember as a kid, you heard the story, when, when I stole colors from the local variety store and I told my mom, thinking she wasn't going to do anything, and she marched me right down to that store and made me apologize with the colors to the lady in our church, so even today, when I still see Miss Johnson, I always wonder. I've turned over a leaf. That discipline was so painful, and Mom has always said it hurt me more than it hurt you, because that was her friend that she had to go and take her daughter to to say, "Do the right thing." Sometimes we need to discipline those people we're shepherding. Third, grow in spiritual maturity. Verse 9, this we also pray for, that you be made complete. And he mentioned it again in verse 11. Paul prayed for their perfection, which doesn't mean absolute sinless perfection, because we know that's never going to happen on this earth. He was praying for their spiritual maturity, that they would not just get to a place and just stop. That word is part of a word family in the Greek that means to be equipped. I am praying 
that you would be equipped. He wants to perfect his people and equip us for service and, and life. Grow in spiritual maturity. And then his last one was be like-minded. Live in peace. Verse 11. Don't fight. Don't argue about things that aren't important in the scheme of eternity. Don't become part of factions in the church that divide you. Well, I don't like the way they do this. This is the way we need to do it. And we start kind of whispering and gossiping and talking about people because they have a different preference than we do about something. And as we shepherd and disciple others, we need to be willing to challenge and exhort them to live in peace. Don't, don't fight about things that really don't matter. Fight about the essentials of the faith. Argue about that. I will, I will fight you tooth and nail that you can't be saved by works. But I'm not going to argue about worship. I'm not going to argue about the color of the carpet. Let's fight about the things that matter. You know, I don't have children. But I feel like I have the role of shepherding here with you as your women's ministry director. I take this very seriously. And my life purpose statement is very simple. And that's to encourage others to passionately pursue Jesus Christ. That is what I've wanted to do with you from day one when I got here. Was How can I challenge you to be all that... He wants you to be. How can I challenge you to move beyond status quo? How can I challenge you to step out in faith and, and to grow towards spiritual maturity, to do the right thing? And that's been my heart. And, and yes, I've made some people mad when I've changed things and done things that's like, what? you? We've always done it that way. And you probably learn very quickly that is not my motto. But it's because I feel a shepherding heart for you, and I don't want you to just settle for status quo. So how did this situation with the Corinthians end? I'm going to close with this. You know, we don't hear the ending of the story in the letter. So what happened? Did they respond positively to Paul? Was it a mess when he got there? What happened? Well, we have some evidence in Scripture that gives us an indication, and scholars pretty much agree that they responded well to his letter. And there's several clues in Scripture, and I'm just going to give you three, and then we're going to end. But uh, first, you know, after he wrote this letter, he went to Corinth to visit them like he said he would. He stayed there three months, and during those three months that he was in Corinth, he wrote a letter to the Romans. But nowhere in the letter of Romans did he ever imply that things were not going well where he was. He never alluded to any problems in the church that he was at, which makes it, it just makes you believe that things were calm and peaceful in Corinth. Or he probably would have said something about, pray for me, I'm about ready to walk away from these heathens. But he didn't. And so that's one of the, the clues that scholars have said makes them feel pretty confident that there, there wasn't a problem there. A second clue 
is that Paul wrote to the Romans in that letter to the Romans about his plan to visit Spain via Rome. Well, if things weren't going well in the Corinthian church while he was there, he wouldn't have left that quickly. He would have stayed to deal with these issues and going, wow, this is a bigger problem than I thought it was. But he didn't. He left after three months and went on to Spain, which, again, scholars say the situation must have been okay because he wouldn't have left. And then a last clue, uh, in Romans 15, uh, 26 and 27, it indicates that the Corinthians had responded to Paul's appeal about money and gathering that collection for the church in Jerusalem, that they had come through with that. They probably wouldn't have given that money to Paul or even collected that money if they were still questioning and doubting him and, and just talking about him. But there was probably reconciliation and they came around and responded. So most of the scholars believe that the Corinthians responded to this letter. Paul shepherded his flock well. He was committed to them. He had concerns, but he was willing to confront those concerns. And he challenged them to go deeper. Who has God given you to shepherd today? Will you shepherd them the same way that Paul shepherded the Corinthians? Will you shepherd them with commitment, with just that awareness of concerns, and then being willing to confront those concerns? And will you challenge them to not just settle, but to always push for beyond status quo? My prayer for us is that we would have the heart of a shepherd, just like Paul. Let me pray.